the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, today on the program, we're going to talk uh, with uh, Ray Rhodes Jr. He is the author of Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. You might be surprised to uh, hear the backstory of this uh, woman of influence and impact and her physical limitations. Uh, we're also going to talk with Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She is uh, running to be reelected in Southwest Washington, 3rd Congressional District. We're going to talk with her about the contours of this midterm election. Uh, she'll be joining us in the latter part of the 5 o'clock hour. So looking forward to that. Taking a look at some of the developing news story, pre- stories, rather, President Trump uh, says that Shannon Bream, that uh, speaking to Shannon Bream, the Republicans have momentum going into the midterm elections because Democrats disgraced themselves. That's a quote during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation battle. We'll talk more about the impact that it appears to be having in Senate races across the country. And Republicans fear incivility toward political foes is becoming the left's new normal as a video shows former Attorney General Eric Holder seemingly in encouraging uh, violence. Uh, To her credit, Michelle Obama came forward and rebuked him and Hillary Clinton, suggesting that that is not the right approach. Hurricane Michael downgrades to a tropical storm after killing at least five people in Florida. And Wall Street watchers await uh, the results of the Dow, which plunged 831 points on Wednesday, the worst loss in eight years. We'll tell you what happened today. And an alleged plot to donate a, a rather detonate a 200 pound bomb on Election Day at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., is thwarted as federal authorities arrest a suspect. Now, it really is fascinating to me how they're able to discover this kind of plot. And it was only through um, the individual who was behind it. He intended to end his own life in the process, sent a message to someone who said they didn't know him. They informed authorities. And, well, the rest we now know. Well, the president suggested in an interview on Fox News earlier today that momentum in the midterm elections has shifted toward Republicans. during the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings and following, saying, I think uh, we are doing really well. Uh, I'm looking at the Senate votes and races that we thought we were uh, not even going to contest. We are now winning. Very importantly, I'm looking at the same thing in the House. A lot of it has has to do with the horrible abuse. Now, Justice Kavanaugh suffered at the hands of these Democrats last week. It was disgraceful. He went on to say they went absolutely crazy. They disgraced their party and they disgraced themselves. Well, it's probably a little too early to call the outcome because no votes have yet been cast. And each day leading up in these final a uh, couple of a few weeks, really, uh, leading up to the midterm elections, anything can happen and things can change rather dramatically. It was a wide ranging interview. However, the president said he plans to announce a successor for the departing U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, over the next week or two and deflected criticism for holding a rally in Pennsylvania the same day Hurricane Michael barreled through the Florida panhandle. Well, the most prominent names in the Democratic uh, establishment seem to be embracing Republican criticism that the radical left has taken over the 
party and appears to be encouraging aggressive taxic, tactics rather against political foes. Well, on Monday, Hillary Clinton said Democrats could not be civil with Republicans in the age of Trump. And now former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder apparently has forsaken calls for civil discourse. Speaking on Sunday at a campaign event for local Georgia Democratic candidates, Holder flatly rejected former First Lady Michelle Obama's widely cited call for civility and instead seemingly urged Democrats to brawl with Republicans. It is time for us as Democrats to be as tough as they are, to be as dedicated as they are, to be as committed as they are, Holder told a crowd of campaign volunteers and candidates. Michelle always say, I love her. She is and my wife are like really tight, which always scares me and Barack. But Michelle always says, and I'm still quoting, when they go low, we go high. No, when they go low, we kick them. Well, after raucous applause, Holder, who served as the uh, Obama administration attorney general from 2009 to 2015. That's what this new Democratic Party is about, Holder uh, clarified later. When I say kick him, I don't mean to do anything inappropriate, don't do anything illegal, but we've got to be tough. Well, the rhetoric on um, in this season has gotten to be uh, a bit uh, raucous. Meanwhile, Hurricane uh, Michael weakened to a tropical, tropical storm earlier today as it hovered over south-central Georgia, according to the National Hurricane Center. The powerful storm made land fall as a Category 4 hurricane ripped through Florida Panhandle with 155 mile per hour winds and 12-foot waves that left a trail of destruction in its wake. Uh, the uh, chief meteorologist says that um, uh, Michael was the fourth most powerful storm to ever make landfall in the U.S. in terms of wind and the third most powerful in terms of pressure, 919 MB. Well, the storm has killed at least five in Florida, including one child, according to reports. An unidentified man was killed by a fallen tree in the panhandle while the child was killed in Seminole County. Equity futures are um, pointing to more pain for investors. Uh, the day after Wall Street slumped and a heavy selling of technology and Internet stocks. We'll tell you more about that later in the program, giving you the update for today. But also federal officials have charged a New York man with manufacturing an explosive device, saying he planned to set off a 200-pound bomb at the National Mall in Washington on Election Day, killing himself and possibly many others. Paul Rosenfeld, 56 was arrested on Tuesday after the Department of Justice was tipped off by an unidentified person in Pennsylvania who claimed Rosenfeld sent text messages and letters stating that he planned to build an explosive device that would go off November 6th as a way to draw attention to his political belief in uh, sortation. Sortation is an ancient Greek method of randomly selecting government officials. Again, that plot has been discovered and thwarted. On this day in 1991, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Anita Hill accused Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexually harassing her. Thomas reappears before the panel to denounce the proceedings as a high-tech lynching. And on this day in 1986, President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev opened two days of talks concerning arms control and human rights in Reykjavik, uh, Iceland. And on this day in 1968, Apollo 7, the first manned Apollo mission, is launched with astronauts Wally Shearer, Don Fulton, Isil, and um, R. Walter Cunningham aboard. All happened on this day. One other uh, breaking news story, the Trump administration is cautiously optimistic that an American cleric who's been held in Turkey for the past two years on espionage and terrorism charges may in fact be released soon. In a negotiated deal that includes the lifting of U.S. sanctions, both threatened and implemented against uh, Turkey, charges against the Reverend Brunson uh, may lead to his being returned to the United States. The agreement, part of which was negotiated at last month's U.N. General Assembly meeting, attended by the president. 
president and Turkish President Erdogan uh, spoke of the condition of, uh, or at least the individual giving details, spoke on condition of anonymity. Officials remain cautious, however, in light of the uh, of a deal that fell apart last summer, with both sides blaming each other for acting in bad faith. Uh, but what we're hearing is that the president, the administration, is cautiously optimistic that um, Pastor uh, Andrew Brunson will be released and as, uh, as soon as in the next day or so. So those of you who have been praying, uh, please continue to do so, and we'll follow this story as it develops and if more information is made available. Fifteen minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Ray Rhodes, Jr. He's the author of Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. The book is published by Moody. He'll join us in our next segment. Well, the stunning scope of her Hurricane Michael's deadly rampage started coming into focus this morning. As dawn in Panama City, Florida, revealed a sprawling mess of almost unimaginable um, devastation, rather, wrought by the third most powerful hurricane in recorded history to lash the United States mainland. Michael is now a tropical storm and, as of this morning, was was pushing its way across South uh, Carolina while also lashing uh, North Carolina and Virginia with strong winds and heavy rains amid a tornado threat. Hurricane Michael made landfall around 1.30 p.m. yesterday, just north of Mexico Beach, as a Category 4 storm with 155 mile per hour sustained winds just one mile per hour below the threshold for a category five designation the storm blasted the florida panhandle and southwest georgia with wicked winds and killed at least seven people that number has been increased in panama city located just west of where the monster storm made landfall drone videos uh, taken by storm chasers uh, show how the winds and rain ravaged a middle school completely um, taking the roof off and one of the uh, sides, uh, one of the walls, so that you could see right through the building. Uh, Jinx Middle School took such a, a hit from the hurricane uh, that they were able to fly the drone right through the school's gym where they, um, the gusts peeled back the roof and collapsed a wall. There were a, at least five confirmed fatalities in Bay County alone, a Panama City police uh, source said authorities are still going house to house and they're asking people to stay out of the city because roads are blocked and there is no power or phone service. Law enforcement source uh, who called the situation catastrophic said that evacuations should should remain where they are evacuees. Uh, and should not come back at this time. Elsewhere in Panama City, downed power lines, uprooted trees, buildings with tops peeled away uh, like so- like soup cans littered the landscape. And as of this afternoon, more than 300,000 people, customers were without power in Florida and nearly 280,000 customers in the dark in Georgia. Emergency management officials are urging residents to stay off the streets until utility crews and other services, uh, service providers uh, can finish their work. As I mentioned, it was downgraded to a tropical storm as it made its way out of Florida into the Carolinas and in Georgia and uh, continues to create uh, some problems there even now. Well, today was something of an unusual day in Washington, D.C. Kanye West did lunch with the president today, but preempted the meal with a wildly entertaining and decidedly unusual press conference in which he covered Superman, the 13th and Second Amendments, North Korea and his budding MAGA bromance with the commander in chief. That's, of course, make America great again. He wore the hat. West began the much anticipated sit down by praising the president's effort in North Korea, saying on day one, you solved one of Obama's biggest troubles. We solved 
one of the biggest problems. Uh, the conversation fumed to, uh, or rather turned to West, discussing the lack of support he received from his Hollywood cohorts. Uh, with regards to his support of the president, they tried to scare me to not wear this hat, West said, referring to his Make America Great Again hat that he wore uh, to the meeting and on a recent appearance on Saturday Night Live. When I put on this hat, it made me feel like Superman, my favorite superhero. You made me a Superman. Um, and he was referring to the fact that as a uh, an African-American man, he is expected to fall in line with certain associations and views, and he felt free Uh, to do otherwise when he wore the hat. He went on to uh, chastise the NBC sketch show and other liberal-leaning media members for their portrayal of the American president. What I need um, SNL and liberals to improve on is if you don't uh, look good, we don't look good, referring to the president. West discussed many topics in a rambling dialogue that included everything from bringing manufacturing to the country, his personal business deals, ending stop and frisk in Chicago, and the 13th Amendment. Uh, I'm certain you can hear that um, conversation. It's being played and replayed uh, all across media. Well, CNN is under fire for a segment on CNN tonight with Don Lemon in which rapper Kanye West was referred to as the token Negro of the Trump administration, which is typically if you don't fall in line with what's prescribed for you, you are singled out as somehow a token and Uncle Tom. You are not free as an African-American to think, as you as they say, outside the box. West uh, met with the president today at the White House uh, to discuss a variety of topics. CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers responded uh, that his issue with the rapper is quite simple. Anti-intellectualism simply isn't cool, Sellers said. Kanye West is what happens when Negroes don't read. Sellers' uh, remark prompted laughter from fellow panelists, um, all of whom, with the exception of one, were also African-American. Black folks are about to trade Kanye West in the racial draft. Okay, said yet another. This is not the Kanye West of 2004, said the third. Now, all of a sudden, because he's put on a MAGA hat and he's an attention whore like the president, he's all of a sudden the model uh, spokesperson. He's the token Negro of the Trump administration. So, Um, Again, this is the position that's been taken, but there's been backlash. For example, football legend turned activist Herschel Walker is calling for CNN to fire Don Lemon after the uh, CNN Tonight host laughed when rapper Kanye West was referred to as a token Negro of the Trump administration during a segment that aired uh, last night, or rather Tuesday night. The segment, which has been uh, slammed as racist, began with Lemon asking if President Donald Trump is simply using Conway as a prop to win other black voters before the midterms. CNN's political commentator uh, responded as uh, as I said. So I'm, I'm grateful to see that there's a backlash. You may not agree with Kanye West. You may not uh, agree with his approach, what he has to say. You may not like his mu- music, but to suggest that he uh, has somehow strayed off the plantation of ideas and is not permitted to hold views that are contrary uh, to your own is uh, a bridge too far. Meanwhile, President Trump announced his 18th wave of judicial nominees on Wednesday night, just four days after the Senate confirmed Justice Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Wednesday's nominees uh, include two candidates for the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, three for the ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The Second Circuit is uh, based in New York and has jurisdiction over New York, Connecticut and Vermont. The Ninth Circuit is based in San Francisco and hears appeals arising from nine Western states, including our own Oregon and Washington. Michael Part of uh, Conzovoy McCarthy Park PLLC, a litigation uh, boutique with a conservative bent, and Judge uh, Joseph Bianco of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York were tapped for the Second Circuit, while Patrick Bumity, uh, David Collins, and Keith Kyle Lee 
were selected for the Ninth Circuit Court of, of Appeal. Bumate, a federal prosecutor, Collins and Lee are appellate advocates in private practice. The president has struggled to secure confirmations in both courts. The president's sole confirmation to the Ninth Circuit, Judge Mark Bennett, is a largely unknown quantity with questionable conservative bona fides. The second uh, Ninth Circuit uh, nominee, Ryan Bounds, uh, lost a narrow floor vote due to racially tinged opinion columns he wrote as an undergraduate at Stanford. The Senate has yet to confirm a Trump nominee to the Second Circuit. As the Supreme Court hears less than 80 cases per year, circuit courts issue final judgments in the overwhelming majority of federal cases. So this is uh, this court is key. The package also includes eight nominees for trial courts in California, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, and Tennessee. The Senate may move on further judicial confirmations before the November elections. The Senate Judiciary Committee is poised to forward nine nominations to the full Senate for full confirmation on Thursday, and a confirmation hearing for lower court nominees is scheduled for later this month, the 17th to be more precise. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will seek terms with um, Democrats to confirm a package of judges before the chamber adjourns for the midterm. And even as uh, Democrats remain the favorites to win back the House in less than a month, their prospects for capturing the Senate, already a long shot thanks to a very challenging map, appears to be dimming even further. Well, Republican voters were re-engaged by the Kavanaugh battle, a phenomenon that could uh, disproportionately benefit the party in red-leaning states hosting major Senate races this cycle. Fortunately for the GOP, those are exactly the sorts of states that will decide the balance of power in the upper chamber. And whether this momentum can be sustained over the coming weeks is crucial and open question. But for now, here's a survey of uh, what uh, some of these states uh, look like. In Arizona, for the first time in weeks, a new poll shows that Republican Martha McSally springing out to a lead over Democrat Kirsten uh, Sanima, and in North Dakota, in a cringeworthy effort to explain her vote against Justice Kavanaugh, whose confirmation was overwhelmingly supported by her constituents, Senator Heidi Heitkamp made a bizarre admission. She says she determined that Kavanaugh was likely guilty of attempted sexual assault based on his body language during the impassioned testimony he delivered in his own defense. In fact, she turned the volume down. She didn't hear his words. She just watched how he conducted himself. Before that, she claimed she was leaning yes on his nomination, but her mute button pop psychology steered here in the opposite direction. So words apparently don't matter. In Montana, with his race shifted to a pure toss-up by the Cook Political Report and the National Rifle Association downgrading his scoreboard due to yet another vote against a pro-Second Amendment Supreme Court nominee, Senator John Tester may not be feeling quite as confident about his re-election as he once was. Reacting to Republican Matt Rosendale hyping the new NRA rating, Tester's communications director took to Twitter. While you were busy making your millions developing Maryland farmland, um, Mr. Tester was making a living shooting hundreds of cows and hogs. So I think Montanans know who gets uh, guns. Well, Tester loves uh, guns so much. He spent the last decade rubber stamping anti-Second Amendment judges and opposing pro-gun rights one after the other. In Nevada, Republican uh, Senator Dean Heller is in the fight of his life, seeking re-election in the bluish state in a blue year. But he pulled off a tight win in Obama. Um, won Nevada six years ago, so don't count him out. Um, two new surveys show a very close race, and Heller slightly ahead. This is one of them. Um, Tennessee is Marsha Blackburn. Is she pulling away? The latest Fox poll has her up five points. The latest CBS poll shows her up eight. And the ongoing uh, New York Times poll is not looking great for Democrat Phil Bredson uh, in that, uh, that face-off. 
And uh, meanwhile, in Missouri, they remain an exceptionally tight stalemate with Republican Josh Hawley clinging to a tiny lead over Senator Claire McCaskill, uh, perhaps boosted further by some encouraging data uh, recently um, collected. Indiana is infamous for its death of statewide polling, uh, so it's not really clear what's happening there. But the Kavanaugh, um, Senator Joe Donnelly sided with Chuck Schumer in opposing Justice Kavanaugh, and that may make a difference in the outcome there in Florida, where they're just trying to uh, recover from recent um, events with the hurricane, uh, remains uh, pretty nip and tuck. A new poll shows Republican Rick Scott, currently the governor, holding a small edge, though other recent polls before Kavanaugh came to uh, to a head showed Senator Bill Nelson creeping back into a small lead. With a major hurricane bearing down on the state, Scott will uh, devote his attention and leadership to that urgent priority for the uh, next number of days. On one hand, he won the... Uh, uh, won't be able to campaign much at all. On the other hand, his strong handling of the last major storm turned into a significant political asset. And while trying to recover from a storm isn't a political asset, you understand the nature of politics. And we'll keep an eye on that. All right, we're going to take a break. Ray Rhodes will be my guest. I should say Ray Rhodes Jr. His book is titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susan uh, Susanna Spurgeon, wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, she was a partner, a support, backgrounder. These are words we might think of when we consider the wife of Charles Spurgeon, the most famous preacher of the Victorian era and one of the most famous of all time. His wife, Susanna Spurgeon, was his partner, his supporter, and lived in the background. But Charles' ministry is inextricably tied to her, and his success cannot be considered without crediting her. Now, it's important to note that Susanna uh, Spurgeon lived for Christ without leaving her home. She was a remarkable woman in her own right. She rode uh, uh, nobody's coattails and was an instrumental in the gospel ministry of the Spurgeon family as her husband, if less well-known. Well, in this well-crafted and thoroughly researched biography, Ray Rhodes Jr. paints a portrait of Susie's uh, own life, her growth in faith, her joyful marriage, her strength in suffering, her devoted ministry, and her lasting legacy. Through health troubles, financial hardships, tensions with extended family, the profound pressures of the most public ministry in the world, and the loss of her dear husband, Susie remained faithful to God and to Charles, her husband. She was devoted to both, served both, and found joy in both. From her devotion and faithfulness grew a ministry all her own, meeting the needs of poor pastors with both books and material goods. Susanna Spurgeon was the wife of Charles Spurgeon and would have wanted to be known as such, but she was a minister of the gospel and a uniquely faithful and gifted woman whose life deserves our attention and honor as well. This biography gives us that opportunity, and I'd like to dedicate this program to a woman whose profile is very similar right here in our community. Her name is simply Marilyn. Ray Rhodes Jr. serves as founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia, and as president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. He served four congregations over three decades of pastoral ministry, and for 15 years he has um, led Nourished in the Word. Uh, he has published several books and holds theological degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is married, has long been a Spurgeon enthusiast, and his uh, doctoral thesis focused on the marriage and spirituality of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. We're delighted that the book is now available for the rest of us, simply titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Georgianne. Uh, excited to be on your program today. 
Well, it says a lot about you that in writing about the name that we are all familiar with, Charles Spurgeon, that you also included Susanna Spurgeon and considered her life worthy of your attention and focus as well. She was a remarkable person, although in a very unconventional way. Let's begin by talking about how the two of them met and uh, her first impression of him, which may surprise some. Yeah, her first impression of Charles was not positive. Uh, Susie was a city girl. Her life was London and uh, later Paris. And Charles Spurgeon was born in uh, the Cambridgeshire area of uh, England in the rural areas of Puritan, where the Puritans had walked and lived. His, his grandfather was a pastor in a village church. And Charles was pastoring a village church when he got a call from London to come and fill the pulpit, uh, essentially to substitute while they were without a pastor. And so he came in December of 1853. Susie did not attend the morning service. She came at the evening service at the urging of family and friends. And when she saw Charles Spurgeon, she could not understand why the uh, once prominent New Park Street Chapel, Baptist Chapel, would call invite this country preacher to preach in their distinguished church. And she was rather offended uh, by his <laughs> hair, by his, uh, the way he used his handkerchief, his clothing, his speech, everything about him. She was not impressed with uh, young Charles Spurgeon. So they were essentially made for each other. <laughs> <laughs> Opposites attract, I guess. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> what made Susie um, a, a good partner for this uniquely gifted but unusual man uh, and challenging given uh, the ministry that he ultimately would, uh, would have? Yeah, well, again, Susie was raised in a culture that valued Bible reading and prayer. Uh, usually morning and evening devotions was a part of uh, conservative Victorian life. Uh, whether it was on the exterior or a matter of the heart, she grew up hearing the Bible and attending church to some degree at least. She was actually converted about a year before that December day when she heard Charles Spurgeon but didn't tell anyone and almost immediately began doubting her faith and struggling spiritually and that continued on until 1854, uh, April of 1854, when uh, a member of the church, and Charles now is preaching regularly at the uh, congregation, and uh, still not formally the pastor, but uh, nevertheless, he gets word that this young lady in the church is struggling spiritually, and he sends her a copy of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And Susie reads that, appreciates that, and then feels like she can trust this young pastor. He's two and a half years her junior as well. Uh, she begins opening up to him, and their friendship begins to develop from that point forward. So she had a foundation of Bible training, but not a believer until about a year before uh, meeting Spurgeon for the first time. Mm. And again, that was not a, a love-at-first-sight um, situation. Once they were married, um, what kind of relationship did they have, and how did they negotiate, or did it come naturally, how the two of them would navigate ministry uh, in the same space as his uh, notoriety was growing and hers, um, her uh, abilities were waning? Yeah. Well, uh, to understand that, we uh, have to back up a little bit to their engagement period. and you know, Things moved really fast from December of 1853 to uh, April of 1854, and he gives her the Pilgrim's Progress, and then he reveals his feelings uh, for her in June of 1854. Just a couple of months later, she is surprised by that, but very excited. She talks about her heart beating rapidly and all the rest. And two months later, they're engaged. 
So from December to of 1853 till August is just their, the period before they were engaged. So things changed rapidly in Susie's mind and in Charles's heart. And soon after, Susie began to realize, and from uh, the crowds that were coming to hear Charles Spurgeon preach and whatnot, that he was no ordinary man. And with her mother's counsel, she made a commitment early on that she would not be a hindrance to his ministry no matter what, and she would support him. Now, that doesn't mean it was easy. She was lonely because sometimes he would preach 10 times a week, and he would be gone a lot in the early days. But I think foundational to her dealing with him uh, and his sort of unique schedule, and Spurgeon was a very busy man. Ultimately, he wrote 135 books, he, uh, 63 volumes of sermons, oversaw 60 institutions, pastored what we would call a mega church and preached all over the all over the place. And so Susie had to be alone a lot. But in the early years of their marriage, she traveled with him uh, a good bit as well. In fact, one of the surprising things about her is uh, how much she enjoyed spending time with him. And she hiked the Alps while Spurgeon rode in a carriage talking to his publisher about theology <laughs> and books. Susie's out in front, and she's exploring the sites. And that's a, quite a contrast to what will happen soon after. Yeah, that is incredible. The two of them had a set of twins, Charles and uh, and Thomas. When did her health uh, begin to fail to the point where she was not able to accompany him as vigorously as she had once and had hoped would be their life together? Yeah, the twins were born uh, really uh, soon after they were married. They were married in January of 1856, and the twins come along at the end of September of 1856, and then there's a great tragedy in England that uh, Spurgeon's preaching and folks are trampled to death, and he falls into a great depression over that. Some people die, others are hospitalized. And uh, so it, it, some people believe that she had some effects of sickness after the birth of the babies, but nevertheless, it wasn't so severe that she couldn't hike and travel with him. But about 1868, she says that her traveling days are over. And she has surgery by one of the most uh, famous gynecologists of the day. We don't know the specifics of the surgery, but we're relatively sure it was some sort of a female issue. And that led her to a really a lifetime of, of being homebound. She seldom was able to attend church again. And uh, she sometimes was in such pain that she could raise neither her head nor her hand, she said. And yet, nevertheless, in the midst of that suffering, and, and Charles, by the way, his, his own health is mm -hmm. not good, and he suffers from the depression. Uh, and yet he's a very joyful man. It's sort of the, the two sides of Spurgeon, very happy, joyful, faithful, gospel-preaching, gospel-believing man. And yet having these really dark times of sadness, and sometimes he couldn't explain uh, why he was sad, she would read to him. He loved for her to read the poetry of George Herbert uh, or the convicting sermons of Richard Baxter, the Puritan, and she would read commentaries to him when he was studying. They had a great love relationship. They held hands. They walked the property when she was able to. They wrote love letters to each other. When Spurgeon was away, he wrote her every day. Uh, sometimes uh, one, one particular letter, he talks about daydreaming of her. It's hard to imagine the great theologian, the mm -hmm. great pastor, Charles Spurgeon, talk, uh, writing a, such a love letter. But that's the way he was. He treasured her, he valued her, and he encouraged her to live and be faithful to Christ in her own right, 
even when she was sick, and she did some remarkable things from her sick bed. Yeah, which of course she did. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Ray Rhodes Jr. The book is simply titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with uh, Ray Rhodes Jr., the book is titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. And the foreword, by the way, is written by Albert Moeller. Well, let's talk about uh, the ways that Susie stood out in ministry on her own, apart from the public work of her husband, because she was a woman committed to serving Christ from the confinement of, of her own home. That's right. In 1875, Charles Spurgeon published uh, the first volume of his Lectures to My Students, still being published today, as Spurgeon remains one of the top-selling Christian authors, even in our day. And he gave her a proof copy of that to Susie and asked her to look over that, which she did. And she was so excited about that that she made a statement to Charles. She said, I wish we could give a copy of this to every pastor in England. And Charles looked at her and surprised her when he said, well, he called her wifey. Wifey, uh, why don't you make that happen? And she found some coins that she had saved for a rainy day, was able to purchase 100 copies uh, to give away, and it became such a, a hit that she continued to do that, and others contributed, and over the course of her lifetime, she gave away 200,000 volumes of various books, mostly Spurgeon uh, titles, to poor pastors. That was her big burden, I think, from that point forward, because many pastors were very poor. They had trouble uh, feeding their children, uh, medical care, clothing, uh, everything. Uh, and yet, with all of that, with their wife and their children and trying to care for them, they, w- they would dare not spend what little money they could scrape up on books. And Susie believed not only do they need medical care and, and food and whatnot, but they also needed books if they were going to bless their congregation and help extend the gospel. So she saw this as really a gospel outreach. And so she invested in getting these books to pastors, but she also would send clothing items for the children and the wife uh, from time to time, as well as occasionally money, stationery, things that would make, uh, that would relieve some pressure from those pastors home, because if the pastor is healthy mentally, emotionally, and physically, then the church has the better opportunity to be healthy, and the gospel has a greater opportunity to expand. And so that was really front and center of one of the things, one of many things that she did from her sickbed, in essence. She became a prolific author, uh, writing five standalone books, editing another. After Charles died, she uh, contributed to and was a co-editor of the massive, colossal work on Charles Spurgeon, the autobiography of him. It then was in four volumes. And she even planted a church uh, after his death. So Susie was a remarkable woman, and she did that uh, with poor health, Much of her work was accomplished even after Charles died, a widow, aging, and yet she believed that God would answer prayer and that she put her hand to the plow, did everything that she could do with the strength that she had, and she trusted that Mm. God might give the increase. Everything she could do with the strength that she had. There's a lot to be learned from that statement alone. How unusual was that for a woman in Victorian, uh, in the Victorian era, to have that kind of impact? Yeah, well, we think of uh, Florence Nightingale. I mean, there were women who were having an impact in, in their culture and in their world. But for the most part, in Victorian England, women had few rights. Uh, they essentially uh, were under the complete control of their husbands. They, they had no independent finances or 
uh, or anything like that. The control, if they brought money into the home, it all became the husband's uh, at marriage, and they couldn't vote and various things. But things were changing during the Victorian era. But women were mostly known as uh, homemakers, and uh, and in the domestic realm, they were called often in Victorian times the angel of the house. Uh, Spurgeon refers to Susie often as the angel of the house. And yet Susie, uh, embracing that, because she too believed that uh, homemaking was valuable and that uh, her responsibility was to love her husband and embrace his ministry and vision and follow him. I mean, she, she was not rebellious in any way. She joyfully submitted to Charles as the head of the home. And yet uh, Charles is encouraging her, use your gifts and use your talents. So nothing about him would have been the oppressive, such as the case of some homes, in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. So he encouraged her outward, and and she, shy at first, early in their marriage, ultimately really just embraced that vision, and she stepped out uh, by faith in Christ and and moved forward. What were the most pronounced and difficult pressures of being married to the most famous preacher of that era? Yeah, I think the loneliness was part of it, because uh, he was gone a lot, Initially, primarily from ministry, but as he got older, and he died at 57, so he accomplished all of those things we mentioned earlier, hmm. uh, and died at 57, a young, I'm almost 57, so <laughs> a, a relatively young man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he was gone a lot, but later on, uh, from 1870s till his death, he had to travel to the s- southern coast of France, often for about three months at the time, prescribed by his doctor, getting him into warmer, a warmer climate out of London for gout and uh, for kidney disease, and also just to brighten him up. Uh, And so he was gone for extended periods of time, long distances, and Susie couldn't travel with him until the very last trip that Spurgeon made, not knowing it was his last trip, not knowing he was going to die. God miraculously gave her the strength to make that last trip with him. Hmm. In what ways did Susanna not only engage in ministry that she initiated, but helped Charles in ministry and in life that made him uh, better at what God had called him to do. Yeah, this is this is my belief, Georgine, that uh, Char- we would not have the Charles Spurgeon that we have if he had not had the wife that he did. She joyfully embraced his ministry, and after he died, she spent the rest of her years promoting his legacy, not to make an idol out of Spurgeon or anything like that, but she knew that he was all about the gospel. And so by extending his legacy and promoting his legacy and getting his sermons and books uh, across the world in various languages, the, the gospel would go forth. And, and you know this, uh, I'm sure. You open a Spurgeon book, and you don't have to read very far before you see something of the beauty of Christ, mm-hmm. the glory of a God who saves sinners like us by grace through faith in Jesus. And Spurgeon was all about that, and Susie was too, and that's what they were passionate about. So by investing in her husband's legacy, the husband that she loved dearly and missed terribly after he died, she was giving the world the gospel, and we today, we open Charles Spurgeon books, and I, I, don't, I think we owe a lot to this invalid widow in London who invested her heart and life in the gospel. We owe to Susanna Spurgeon, the Charles Spurgeon that we enjoy today. Now, Susanna and Charles Spurgeon had two sons. What influence did she have in raising up these two Spurgeon sons to be in ministry? Yeah, in many ways, she was the primary influence. I mean, both of the sons revered their father, but he was absent more, and she was with them more often. 
And so when they were young, she would uh, sing with them around the piano. She was a pianist, and she read to them. Uh, she uh, ministered the gospel to them. Now, both of them came to faith in Christ from someone else other than Charles or Susanna, but both of them really looked to their mother as the key uh, influence on bringing them to saving faith. And they both became ministers of the gospel and served in the various institutions that Spurgeon had started or led. And uh, they both died as faithful men with their own faithful families as well. But uh, Thomas especially, uh, he treasured his mother. And I think the relationship he had with Susie was was very, very close and very affectionate. They both talk about one another in very affectionate terms. What would you say is Susanna Spurgeon's lasting legacy? Yeah, well, uh, one, to uh, not quit. Uh, Do what you can, as we said earlier, with the strength that you have for as long as you can. Uh, Don't be content just to to sit idly if you can do something. There are some people who, who literally can't do anything. Maybe they can pray, and that's that's everything, right? We're asking the God of creation to, to help us and bless his work. So that's, that's outstanding. But sometimes we can do more than maybe we think we can do. Susie Spurgeon was not an overconfident person who imagined that she could do great things. She believed she had a great God. And so she persevered through great suffering. She invested in something bigger than herself, uh, seeing pastors and their families helped and the gospel extended and she gave her heart to her husband. And she did so without hesitation or reservation or qualification. She loved this man, and he loved her. And she looked forward, uh, when he died, she looked forward to the day that she too would be in heaven, and together around the throne of God, they would praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so many things to learn from her. I'm just moved by her story, and the more I've learned about her, the more I've wanted to know about this dear woman. Well, I thank you so much for sharing what you know about this dear woman, because I think we will all be encouraged and inspired by her. Again, the book is titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. And uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. You, uh, you're doing a great job there. You're doing the Lord's work, and we thank God for you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, we're going to hear from a representative, uh, Jamie Harara Butler. She's going to be joining us later in the 5 o'clock hour as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back eight minutes after four, five o'clock. Figure out what time it is, what day it is. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Now, engineering the program today is Aaron. And I have to admit, earlier in the program, when I typically say today's engineer is, I don't know Aaron's last name. I'm a little embarrassed. I should know that by now. He's relatively new to the staff. So, Aaron, I apologize and next time I'll say your full name, and perhaps at the end of the program I can get that from you. But Aaron is engineering today's program today. There, I've admitted my failure, and uh, I'll fix that before the time is up. Uh, anyway, glad to have you with us. In this hour, we're going to talk with Representative uh, U.S. Representative Jamie Harara uh, Butler. She represents Southwest Washington's 3rd Congressional District. We'll talk with her about this midterm election that is just weeks away. And I don't know about you, but aside from the outcome, which is vitally important, it always is, I'm really looking forward to um, it being behind us and no more references to the midterm election. Now, what you have to realize is the minute that election closes down and the results are announced, the 2020 presidential election begins. And so we have maybe a 15, 20 minute window in which we are free from the campaigning that has become a perpetual 
uh, practice these days. But anyway, um, we're going to talk with her a little bit about uh, that when she joins me in the latter part of the five o'clock hour. One of the things I mentioned briefly in the first hour today was that the Trump administration has expressed cautious optimism that the uh, pastor Brunson, who's been jailed in Turkey, will be released. And we're hearing uh, some accounts that it could be as early as um, this week. The Trump administration expressed that optimism um, he's being held in Turkey, you might recall, for the past two years. That uh, became official just a couple of days ago, two full years on espionage and terrorism-related charges. And uh, we're being told that he will be released soon after a court hearing on Friday, according to U.S. officials and people close to the case. Apparently, he has officially been charged or he's received a verdict or something. Well, in a negotiated deal that includes the, the lifting of U.S. sanctions, both threatened and implemented against Turkey, charges against the Reverend uh, Andrew Brunson are to be reduced to allow him to be sentenced to time already served and to be allowed to serve any remaining sentences here in the United States. Now, the agreement, part of which uh, was negotiated at last month's U.N. General Assembly meeting attended by the president and the Turkish president Recep Erdogan will either lead to Brunson's immediate release Friday or his freeing within a few days following, according to officials, the one who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the still secret arrangement, which is raises the question, why are we talking about it? If it's secret, but there you have it, a little bit of the scuttlebutt. In a speech um, Wednesday night, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the administration was very hopeful that we'll see a good outcome before too long. A spokesman for the Turkish embassy in Washington said that they were uh, not in a position to comment on an ongoing judicial process, which, of course, I'm now talking about openly. Well, the return of Brunson, whose case has been an intense focus for the Trump's uh, administration and certainly for his evangelical a political base would be a major victory for the president. The administration would likely cast it as proof of the wisdom of his hardline stance against Turkey, uh, a NATO ally and his commitment to protecting besieged Christians around the world. Now, resolution could also mark a turning point in relations between the two governments. It's been a bit tense. Uh, they've been especially fraught in recent uh, years, marked with mutual mistrust, charges of bad faith, despite a range of shared interests and extensive military and security ties. Now, part of this may um, stem from, although that just happened a couple of days ago, from the uh, journalist, the Turkish journalist who is missing and and believed um, murdered in Saudi Arabia. But that's a whole other story I won't go into. Well, a European diplomat who closely follows the subject predicted that Brunson would be convicted of supporting a terrorist organization sentenced to four to five years, then credited for time served and expelled from Turkey. Now, that would be on his record, whether or not it actually reflects what happened. For Erdogan, it's important that he's not seen as giving the United States, giving into United States pressure. So the charge would have to be made uh, that he lets the judicial process take its course. And he shows that Brunson is guilty, said the diplomat who also spoke on condition of anonymity. Well, U.S. officials remain cautious, however, in light of a deal that fell through uh, last summer. I think we were all looking forward to and anticipating his release then, after which each side accused the other of bad faith and, well... Pastor Brunson passed the two-year mark just a few days ago. Pastor Brunson, who has lived in Turkey for more than two decades, was arrested in a sweep of thousands that took place after an unsuccessful coup attempt in 2016. So he wasn't singled out. He was part of a larger group. Charges against him, which he and the Trump administration have said are bogus, include contacts with the so-called coup mastermind, Turkish cleric Fethullah Gelen, or Gulen, a permanent U.S. resident living in Pennsylvania and a longtime political foe of 
Erdogan. Well, the indictment against uh, Pastor Brunson also charges him with having contact with Kurdish separatists that Turkey and the United States have designated as terrorists. Well, after repeated efforts to arrange his uh, freedom were unsuccessful, the president and Erdogan, with only interpreters present, discussed the issue at the NATO summit back in July. Reports of what uh, had transpired were vague, and the two sides later had um, uh, differing versions of what the leaders agreed to. President Trump came away believing Erdogan was prepared to help him out in arranging Brunson's release, according to a White House official, in exchange for the president's intervention with Israel to free a Turkish national being held there on charges of aiding Hamas. Now, again, we don't know if that's the case. Turkish officials later said that they had discussed a step-by-step process that would eventually lead to the pastor's release, but that... um, No specific ask was made, and the Israeli uh, release had only been mentioned in passing. Well, Erdogan has repeatedly demanded extradition of Gulan. This is the cleric in the United States, which officials have said is unjustified based on evidence Turkey has so far presented of alleged coup plotting. Turkey also seeks the release of um, a Turkish banker convicted in May of taking part in a massive scheme to violate U.S. sanctions on the purchase of Iranian oil. The high-profile federal trial also involved a a Turkish state bank, which is still awaiting court determination of what could be a multi-million dollar fine. Well, U.S. officials charged that the Turks had uh, brought up all these issues, raising the ante for Brunson's release after the president upheld his side of the bargain and obtained the release from Israel. Within hours, rather, after the Turkish court ruling in the city of Izmir and on the Mediterranean coast, uh, the president publicly threatened sanctions, and you can probably trace what happened next. The good news is the headline, again, the Trump administration cautiously optimistic that Pastor uh, Brunson jailed in Turkey now for two full years, most of that before charges were ever brought, and uh, with no verdict, uh, may be released as soon as this Friday. So we'll uh, certainly keep praying about that. Well, looking at what's happening in Oregon with our election, the Oregon Republican Party filed a complaint uh, with the state's ethics commission on Wednesday asking for an investigation into whether Democratic Governor Kate Brown used public funds for campaign purposes after a video from a conservative activist surfaced. I'm talking about James O'Keefe, and he, of course, is the founder of the nonprofit Project Veritas, is uh, best known for unscrupulous tactics. That's how his opponents would describe unscrupulous tactics of videotaping people without their knowledge and publishing the results in an attempt to expose uh, their wrongdoing. Um, O'Keefe and Project Veritas have received national attention and critique, including after they hired a woman to uh, uh, speak to The Washington Post about being impregnated by Alabama Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore. Their goal was to discredit The Washington Post reporting on the subject. Several women accused him of um, untoward conduct uh, when they were teenagers and he was an adult. Anyway, Project Veritas's mission is to investigate corruption, dishonesty, waste and fraud in both public and private institutions, according to their website. So they've called for a, uh, a Republicans in the state of Oregon have called for an investigation. Apparently, there's tape um, of improper campaign finance handling and public monies being used. We'll just have to wait and see what happens with that one. Not at all clear how it will move forward. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, coming up in our next two segments, we're going to talk with Representative Jamie Harara Butler. She represents Southwest Washington's 3rd Congressional District. Uh, she'll join us uh, in just a few minutes. Well, Nassau astronaut, uh, astronaut rather Nick Haig and Russian cosmonaut Alexei 
something, made a dramatic escape after their Soyuz booster rocket failed just two minutes after launch on Thursday. Now, this was reminiscent of what many of us witnessed uh, some years ago when one of our rockets failed before the program was uh, uh, was mothballed some years ago. After blasting into the sky from the uh, uh, Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, uh, the crew was forced to make a dangerous ballistic re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. And it doesn't even sound good, ballistic re-entry. Ballistic reentry uses atmospheric drag to slow the spacecraft. It can expose crew members to G-forces 10 times greater than those on Earth. According to New Scientist, Popular Mechanics describes ballistic reentry as steep and short compared to the long, flat uh, profile of a controlled descent. So this was pretty dramatic. Well, if the capsule loses orientation during that uh, ballistic reentry, it could expose its uh, hatch. Um, as opposed to its uh, heat shield, which would kill the crew members, according to pop- popular mechanics. For this reason, the Soyuz capsule rotates uh, on its axis of trajectory during descent to boost stability. Um, and uh, it's uh, built uh, from a rifle similar to the bullet that's fired from a rifle, they're telling us. Well, the rescue capsule landed safely. Uh, in the steppes of Kazakhstan on uh, earlier today. And while the crew endured uh, highly... Uh, high G-forces, Russian and U.S. space officials say that they are all in good condition. Wow. Well, Oleg Orlov, the head of the Institute for Medical and Biological Problems, Russia's uh, top space medicine research center, said in televised remarks that the astronauts endured six Gs during their sharp ballistic descent. He added that space crew is trained to endure uh, that kind of load, but certainly did not expect that that would be the case. Now, the United States, of course, uh, is now relying on Russia to get its um, astronauts to and from the International Space Station since we mothballed uh, our program some uh, some time back, which uh, some today use it as a pretext to suggest that we need to get back into um, spending time and money in space. Speaking of spending, U.S. stocks were whipsawed for the second straight session today, a day after Dow Jones Industrial Average registered its third highest point drop in its history. Well, the blue chip index tumbled about 546 points or 2.13 percent as investors continued to trade on concerns over rising interest rates. Well, the Dow lost about 832 points in Wednesday trading. The broader S&P 500 dipped 57 points, about 2 percent, while the Nasdaq was down 93 points or 1.25 percent. The market suffered a Another volatile session in which the Dow tumbled nearly 700 points at the lows of the session before it crawled back some of those losses. The CBOE volatility index, some of you know what that means, known as the Wall Street fear gauge, jumped more than 12 percent. So this was a bit of a volatile uh, little period. With the selling, President Trump uh, continued to hammer the Federal Reserve. His first remarks came yesterday when he said the central bank has gone crazy with their rate hikes. Saying, and I quote, I think the Fed is making a mistake. They're uh, so tight. I think the Fed has gone crazy. He was speaking to reporters on his way to a rally in Pennsylvania. He kept the insults coming on Thursday, appearing on Fox and Friends in a wide ranging interview, which included his thoughts on fiscal policymakers. Um, of note, on Thursday, the yield of the 10 year U.S. Treasury note retreated slightly but remained above 3%. A trio of earnings from the big banks on Friday, including JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, will also be closely watched. Those stocks remained under pressure on Thursday. Economic data released on Thursday included a report on inflation. The consumer price index rose a modest 0.1% in September, and that was below the estimated rise of 0.2%. Meanwhile, as America's top diplomat, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo, 
uh, said that South Korea must uh, pursue good relations with uh, foreign powers and also uh, speak up for American interests. He was rebuked South Korea's kowtowing, as they say, to North Korea. For that reason, Pompeo deserves credit for challenging the South Korean government's recent deal to suspend military drills along the Korean demilitarized zone. South Korea made clear on Wednesday that uh, Pompeo had expressed his strong displeasure over that deal. The South said that they these suspended drills reduce the risk of inadvertent military exchange and ameliorate uh, broader tensions. But they're wrong because the South Korean approach actually fosters two negative outcomes. It endangers U.S. military forces and it emboldens, emboldens rather hardliner elements in the North Korean regime. So the secretary, having just recently returned from North Korea, uh, rebuked our South Korean allies for kowtowing and moving um, too quickly in some areas and neglecting others. We're keeping a close eye on what happens in that region uh, we know that uh, the North Koreans wanted to um, get an agreement with the South Koreans and the United States to end hostilities that falls far short of what the United States wants in terms of a real productive agreement to denuclearize the region, which, by the way, has still yet to be defined. Meanwhile, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned uh, Wednesday that the odds of terrorists using civilian drones in the U.S. to attack mass gatherings is steadily increasing. He offered the dire warning in testimony before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. The FBI assesses that given their retail availability, lack of verified identification requirements to procure general ease of use and prior use overseas, unnamed aircraft systems, will be used to facilitate an attack in the United States against a vulnerable targets, such as a mass gathering. He, uh, in testimony, said that terrorist groups like the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, as well as Mexican drug cartels and MS-13, have made repeated and dedicated efforts to use commercial drones as weapons. Terrorist groups could easily export their battlefield experiences to use weaponized unmanned aircraft systems outside the conflict zone. Uh, Ray was has previously uh, warned that the threat posed by commercial drones exists and is increasing. He testified in September the terrorist attacks using drones were coming to the U.S. imminently. Meanwhile, there was an interesting um, article in Newsmax that uh, the headline read, Drug cartels, gangs fly drones to defy police. Law enforcement must now face an airborne threat that could endanger them as well as civilians. So this poses a real uh, imminent threat in that way already and certainly uh, threatens to broaden. Uh, Matthew Lysiak writes that when an eagle-eyed Customs and Border Patrol agent spotted a black speck hovering two miles west of the San um, Yezidro uh, port, uh, port of Entry, the guards quickly radioed ahead to law enforcement in the area to be on the lookout. Agents soon set off on ATVs to give chase. What they discovered was a 25-year-old man and a bag stuffed with 13 pounds of methamphetamine, street value about $50,000. They also found a black two-foot-tall drone, and the both were involved in moving drugs from one place to the other. And it is now official. The latest round of tariffs now means that the total tax increase on Americans from enacted tariffs exceeds the tax increases from the Affordable Care Act, unpopularly known as Obamacare. This according to the Washington Examiner. On the 19th of last month, the president imposed a 10% tax on $200 billion of Chinese imports. On the 1st of January 2019, this tax will rise to 25%. But even without that January tariff rate increase, trade taxes on American businesses and consumers will exceed those 
of the Affordable Care Act. With the added $20 billion in trade taxes coming from this latest round of tariffs, the National Taxpayers Union's uh, Foundation now estimates the total annual cost of inactive tariffs will be, or rather to be, $41 billion, or actually $41.5 billion. That easily outpaces the tax bill from the Affordable Care Act, for next year, which is $34.6 billion after accounting for recent changes to the Affordable Care Act. Now, this puts it into some perspective. The strategy, one assumes, is that the president would continue to raise the tariffs and that it would reach a breaking point and agreements would be made. But until that happens, at this point, we're now being told that the latest round uh, now means that the total tax increase on Americans from these enacted, not future, but enacted tariffs exceeds the tax increases from the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to talk with Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She represents Southwest Washington in the 3rd Congressional District. With the midterm elections approaching, we're going to talk to her about what to expect in the days ahead. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She is the first elected to Congress at the age of 31, representing Southwest Washington's 3rd Congressional District. She was raised right here in Southwest Washington. She's one of the youngest women currently serving there. Uh, she and her husband, Daniel, have three uh, have two children, Abigail and Ethan. They reside in Battleground. She is in the midst of a midterm election, and we're talking with her about uh, that battle and what we might expect in Washington moving forward. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. It's good to be here. There's a lot of focus on the midterm elections from a national level. And let me ask you first Mm -hmm. to comment on that. Events that have unfolded in Washington, primarily focused on the, uh, the Senate, um, have uh-huh. made this midterm election a, a challenging one, and the Democrats very much want to retake control of the House. Your thoughts on the national emphasis in this midterm election? Well, I actually you know, think that ultra-liberal groups um, don't like where we've been going, right? In the last two years, we have turned the economy around in an, ama- in an amazing way. I mm-hmm. mean, unemployment is at all-time lows. Uh, uh, wage growth has come up, um, real uh, benefits, and um, if people are seeing a benefit all across the board. And same is true with regard to the direction. I think what you saw in the Senate, right, was getting a, a justice confirmed um, that's going to uh, stick to the Constitution. And I think what we're seeing on the other side um, for among more extremists are they're just they don't like it. You know, in 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 my in my instance, right, um, my opponent wants that tax cut money. So there's twenty three hundred dollars per family that they're keeping in their pocket as a result of that tax cut bill. She wants all that money back. She wants it to go back to Washington, D.C. so that she can spend it. And I think that's the difference that we're seeing is they want to be more in control of it. Whereas, you know, I think fundamentally, the whole purpose, the whole setup of our our institution was that the people are in charge. The people run the government. The people are the bosses. And so you're seeing that play out on a national scale. And I think you're seeing that fervency. I know one of the things that has marked your role as a representative, you serve on the Appropriations Committee, is not only a national focus, but you have really focused your attention on issues specific to our region. What do you think is most important in Southwest Washington? Oh, my. (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) Yeah. So the number one thing I'd say is keeping this strong economy. When I got into office, um, I held my first jobs fair in 2011, and I will never forget the desperation, right? 
I, there were 1,800 people in line to get into my jobs fair. And these were new, new folks coming into the uh, job market, people who didn't, couldn't retire yet but still had mortgages to pay. I mean, do you remember that the desperation people were losing their homes? Well, if you fast forward to today, unemployment in my largest counties are four and a half and five and a half percent. I mean, we've seen double digit drops across all of my counties in Southwest Washington. And that's because we've been laser focused on growing the economy, letting people keep more of what they've earned, letting them choose how to spend it, what charity to give it to, where to invest it. And I, I, I've taken that approach throughout this district. I think making sure we protect that economy is number one. And that's a big difference. My opponent and I, and, and I, I've stated it and she stated it. I think people should keep that money, not mm -hmm. the government. I also think that there's a lot of issues that are related to job growth, um, whether it's keeping our forests healthy, making sure that our freeways and, and roads are, are, are strong and they have infrastructure that will move them. Um, you know, the tolling issue in southwest Washington, I'm trying to make sure that folks recognize if you're going to get, you know, there's a lot of controversy about it right now. But fundamentally, what's happening is or Washington residents are being told you're going to pay a toll, but we're not going to fix the bridge. We're not going to give you a benefit. I stepped up and said, hey, this needs to be fair. Um, you know, there's other issues with regard to our, our energy systems, right? There are groups right now who are trying to breach the hydro system, the Columbia mm -hmm. and Snake River hydro systems. Literally, they want to rip the dams out. Um, that's 70% of the energy for our region. And that's if you believe in manufacturing jobs, we need to have that low-cost, reliable energy um, and so I've been working on protecting that. I also think, I mean, ultimately, um, I, I really believe that people here know best how to run their lives and, and their businesses, and they know where they, how they want to raise their kids. And, and ultimately, I think this is kind of coming down to who's going, who's, what, what philosophy do you think should run the government? People who believe that, you know, that the average folks are in charge or people who believe bureaucrats should be in charge. Um, or, or, you know, anointed leaders. I don't believe that. I, I think the reason that the founders set our system up the way they did was because, well, shoot, <laughs> we were given free will um, and we were, we can govern ourselves. And I think that's kind of what we see the fight playing out. Yeah, yeah. Now you're running in uh, Southwest Washington's third congressional district. It was uh, won by Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. There's a lot of pressure to flip oh, actually, the House. And Go oh, ahead. I should correct that. I know there was a couple of news reports that said that. Donald Trump actually carried this district, um, and and it was reported incorrectly. But I think there, you're, what you're what you're leading into. I apologize. What you're leading into is that this is a swing district. Mm -hmm. It's not one that breaks hardcore Republican or hardcore Democrat. Um, and I, I I I have believed from the beginning that this is an independent minded district. I grew up here. The folks here shape my mindset, which is why when you know, this administration has had proposals like, like selling off Bonneville Power or drilling off the coast of Washington that I think would hurt us. I've stood up to the administration. Um, but it's also why I think, you know, a majority of the people here actually voted for Donald Trump to be president because they didn't want to be controlled by yet another kind of elite group from D.C. And so it's a very careful line to walk. And that's one of the reasons I think I fit it well, is I grew up here. Yeah, These yeah. shaped my, my perspective. Well, Go let ahead. me ask you about right. the future of, of health care, because that has emerged as an important issue to lots of the electorate. Yes. Uh, you voted to upend the, the Affordable Care Act under uh, Obama uh, back in, what was it, 2017. Where do you see the future of health care going? And there's a lot of disappointment that people thought we sent a majority mm -hmm. of Republicans uh, to the House, yep. the Senate. And we still have uh, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, you're right about that. And I'm, I am chief among them in terms of disappointment. 
Um, I don't know. My family, uh, we have a family member with a chronic health, health condition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're going to be part of, yes, we're going to be part of the health system, regardless of whether I'm in this job or not in this job. So if it didn't matter to me before, it certainly um, has been amplified. I should say it has always mattered to me. It is now amplified that we fix the healthcare system in this country. Obamacare has been failing us. I, can't, I don't have time to tell you how many, how many times I've had to step in to make sure that people get care under the ACA because it's just a system that it, it doesn't, it's not working. Mm-hmm. However... I will also say that this is one of the areas where I think Republicans missed the ball with regard to the bill they put forward last year. Um, You know, our promise has always been we're going to repeal it and replace it with something that works better, that makes sure that you have access to health care, that it's less, it's not the most expensive, and that you have options. And unfortunately, I think ultimately that's why that bill sells is it wouldn't have brought down premiums. I, one of the things, and this is what I told the president, um, I'm going to help you keep your promise uh, to make sure we deliver better health care, not just mediocre health care, not return to the status quo health care, but we're going to replace Obamacare with something that leaves people better off, gives them better access to care at a more affordable price. And he agreed. I don't think we're done. We are not done. We are going to have to fix it. I'm excited that we're going to fix it. I think there have been some hard lessons learned with how that bill was put together um, and trying not to rush it, but to do it right. And and I see that as one of the things in the next Congress that we're going to tackle. And I'm excited about it. I also think we haven't waited. You know, I have fought on on getting kids he- access to health care. We've had um, ex- extensions and expansions of children's health care. We've had bills with regard to getting, you know, kids on Medicaid, access to health care across state lines. I've been working on uh, maternity care and a maternity care caucus. So there have been a number of things we have moved the ball down the down the field on, um, but but you're absolutely right. I think the one big thing that's left undone, you know, we're seeing an amazing economy because of the tax bill. We need to fix um, the healthcare system in our country. Yeah, yeah, and certainly, yeah, yeah. We're talking with Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She's the first elected to Congress in 2010. She's the youngest uh, at that time to represent Southwest Washington's third district. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She's the first elected to Congress in 2010. She's the youngest uh, at that time to represent Southwest Washington's third district. Another issue that has emerged as important, primarily, I think, on the Republican side, but I think on on both sides of the aisle, is immigration. And there's a growing Mm -hmm. frustration that that is an issue that has not been directed. I would just mention, Mm -hmm. uh, if if Republicans are not returned in majority, Nancy Pelosi will be the Speaker of the House, most likely, or someone Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. uh, very like her. Where do you see this issue going moving forward into the next session? Oh, this is a great, this is a great question. So um, I've now gotten to vote uh, twice for re- immigration reform bills that would um, secure our borders, that would add more money and make sure that we have uh, control. I'm not saying, you know, it's not radical to say we want to know who's coming in and out of our country and have control over it. That's a safety issue. Um, we Unfortunately, they haven't come up in the Senate and we're hopeful. Um, even as we come back into the lame duck session, we have another shot at that this year. We've increased funding for getting more law judges down to get these cases adjudicated, to put more uh, of a wall up. We've put more money into that on the House side. So we have made progress. There's more to make. I, I think your point, though, if Nancy Pelosi becomes Speaker of the House, we go in a totally different direction. On virtually you know, every right issue now, you've mentioned. On every <laughs> issue, and to the extreme. Um, 
Right now, they're calling, members of their party are calling to abolish ICE. So they don't even want to just protect the border. They want to get rid of the men and women who, who stand between you and I and potential, um, you know, there are people who are trying to sneak through who want to terrorize our country, who want to hurt our citizens. And they want to abolish the agency that's tasked with, with, with keeping those people out. I mean, I, I, I think the, the contrasts are very stark. You don't have to agree with everything this administration does, but you do have to recognize um, to say that we should give up control of our borders uh, is extremely irresponsible. And that is where really some of the driving parts of Nancy Pelosi's party are at right now. Mm. Uh, We mentioned earlier that you have had a focus on the region you represent. And one of the issues that's come up, although it's not specifically a federal issue, is the aging I-5 bridge over the Columbia Mm -hmm. River. It's a Mm -hmm. legislative issue, but there is a role for the federal government to play. Can you explain what uh, oversight you have provided? Because you have um, helped to shepherd federal funds um, up to this point. Where do you see that going in the days ahead? You're exactly right. So right now we're seeing we're starting to see uh, a, a more of a, a consensus building amongst Southwest Washington lawmakers and policymakers, um, and pushing forward to get folks on the other side of the river to come into a compromise on a fix. You know, I've said for a long time I don't have to have my plan in place on the Columbia River. It just has to be a plan that meets. Um, the needs of both sides of the river. It can't just be weighted to one side. Um, And I see that happening. I've seen my role as being responsible to go help get federal funding. And there's a couple different, you know, I'm an appropriator. I sit on the appropriations Mm -hmm. committee. And there's a couple of different pots of money that we've put uh, a billion and a half and a billion and a half in different pots in that are available as grant money. So when this plan is crystallized to the point where they're ready to make a make a grant application, we have put those funds in place. And and the reason I supported putting those funds in place is because I know we are going to get to a point where we agree on a replacement. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to have 100% buy-in, but we're going to have a majority of consensus that it's something that's going to be safe, it's going to move people and freight effectively. Um, and then it's the, I think the federal government has a responsibility to help fund it, which is why we put about $3 billion into these different accounts that's that's available when they put their implications in. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about which side of the political aisle is most energized as a response Uh to events that have taken place in Washington. What are your thoughts in southwest Washington as far as who's energized and how that's likely to fall out when uh, Election Day actually arrives? This is a million-dollar question. Isn't it, though? Um, It really is. Because, you know, if you just read, you know, know, some of the, the popular news on it, it's, it's hard to distill. I mean, I think I'm reading more that, you know, Democrats are more energized. But what I'm seeing in southwest Washington, and I, I find that people aren't as, as they're not going to write a letter to the editor about it. They're not going to stand up in a group and say it. But people grab me all the time and say, hey, we're, we're going in the right direction. Things are going good. Keep at it. You guys are doing the right thing. Thank you for fighting. And I think overall, that's why I, I, I feel like, um, you know, there's a whole lot of hay being made over some of the national issues. Mm-hmm. But I think folks here locally see that we're in a better place, see we're moving in the right direction. And my hope is they don't they don't want to change that direction and and I'll earn their support on Election Day. Well, let me just invite you as we close our conversation to speak to uh, listeners in southwest Washington um, as to why they should consider sending you back. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so it's my honor and it's my privilege to get to serve my hometown, my my countrymen and the United States Congress, and no one will fight harder 
every single day uh, for each and every one of them than I will. And I've proven it. You know, I, I have been rated as the 15th most bipartisan member of Congress based on my accomplishments. And I've not shied away from a fight, whether it's getting our, sea, our bipartisan sea lions legislation passed or, or fighting to protect uh, Washington residents from anything that resembles an unfair toll or for making sure that uh, we move our health care system forward. No one's going to fight harder than I will. And I, uh, I ask for your vote as we move forward. If, it, if you're doing better and you like the way things are going, I ask you to stick with it. I would add to that, if you're looking for a pro-life representative, uh, you want to consider oh, yeah. sending uh, Jamie Herrera Butler back. Hey, thank you so 100%. much in this busy season for taking time to talk with us. Thank you. I love it. Really appreciate, appreciate it. You. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. We're going to have some fun on a Friday. And I want to thank Aaron Anderson for engineering today's program. Now, Aaron and I have worked together about a half a show uh, yesterday, so we're just getting acquainted, at least on the air. So appreciate very much your being with us. I tell you what, you come back tomorrow. I'll get the name right. We'll do this again. Okay, I think I think I got an affirmative there. Hey, thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow for a bit of a fun Friday program. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.